The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Mark 4, 36 through 41. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey guys, how are we doing? Good? If we haven't met, my name is Cole Simpson. I'm on our lead team here at Citizens Church, and we are a church plant that started weekly gatherings in the beginning of January. So excited that you guys are with us tonight as we continue our series of the fruit of the Spirit in a time of the flesh. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Hey God, thanks that you are good that you are sovereign and in control, that you have given us a time and a space where we get to come together and worship you. I pray that you use my words, that it's not about what I want to get across, but what you want people to hear, that you are sovereign and that you are enough. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So like I talked about, we've been in this series talking about the fruit of the Spirit, And so if you're not familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, there's a passage in Galatians 5 where Paul, who's an apostle, kind of explains that there are these fruit or these attributes that believers should have. And those fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul kind of explains that these fruit are opposed to our natural operating system. So our natural operating system is what Paul would talk about as the works of the flesh. And what he means by that is just how we naturally are as apart from Jesus. And so what Paul does is he tries to explain to us how we should operate in Christ in these fruit of the Spirit. And so like we talked about in the liturgy, today we're going to be focusing specifically on peace and specifically on this idea of peace in a time of anxiety. So Webster's Dictionary defines anxiety as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And I don't think it would be difficult for most of us to admit that over the last year and a half, we've probably struggled with a little bit of anxiety. What we're supposed to do in this global pandemic, how are we supposed to respond But if you start to look even further into this idea of anxiety, especially in America, it's kind of overwhelming how common it is. So scientists or researchers would say that the average high school kid today has the average anxiety of a level of a 1950s uh, psychiatric hospital patient, which is a little unnerving. And then we spend, as a country, about $200 billion a year on our mental health. And 14 billion of that would go towards antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication. And then the ADAA, or the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, apparently we have an Anxiety and Depression Association, 
would say that about 40 million people struggle with anxiety, which is about 18% or one in five. And then if we just look at the last year from August 2020 to December 2020, those rates went from 31 to 37% with depression and 24 to 30% with anxiety. So conservatively, one in five Americans struggle with anxiety. And if you're a little bit more aggressive, those numbers look like more like one in three. So one in five people in America struggle with some form of clinical anxiety. And those are just the numbers. Let's talk about anecdotal evidence. What about just the last year when you think about the decisions you've had to make, how many questions and uncertainties you've had, right? So should you get the COVID vaccine? Should you not? Should you let your kids be around other kids? Should you let your kids be around unvaccinated people? Are you killing someone if you leave the house and you haven't gotten the vaccine? Are you selfish? I don't actually think I know the answers to these questions. I'm just trying to prove a point that we live in a time where knowing the answers to these questions is difficult and there's a lot of nuances in them. And that's just COVID. What about everything else? What about how do we just parent our kids, right? Do we spank our kids? Do we not spank our kids? Is that abuse? Is it not abuse? What about our finances? Are we generous? Are we good stewards? What about things like Afghanistan, race relations, parenting, friendships, finances? And that's the macro picture. What about the micro picture? Like, was I a jerk when I said that? Did my friend think that I overstepped? Should I answer that email when I get home from work and ignore my kids? Or should I work for another two hours? How do I talk to my friend about this? And that there's just this minutia, there's just this anxiety of in this minutia of everyday life. How do I get through today without running to this anxiety? And it can feel like that anxiety is just a normal response in humanity. We're just anxious. This is part of who we are. But Paul would talk about this differently. Paul would not say anxiety is just an external response to something going around us. He would say anxiety is actually against the way of Jesus. So he would talk about how anxiety is a work of the flesh, a part of our sinful nature against God, because at the core of anxiety is this idea that I should be the master of my fate, not God. That everything would be fine if... Everything would be fine if I had enough money. Everything would be fine if my life was more comfortable. Everything would be fine if, fill in the blank, I met the perfect partner, I had the dream job, whatever it was, the right medications, the right counselor, everything would be fine if. Anxiety says if I was God, if I was in control, then I would not have issues. And so as Christians, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to this anxiety, this normal part of life that is all around us when it is so easy, when it is so natural to think, if I could just control my life, then everything would be easier. Paul says that God offers a better way, that he offers a fruit of peace, so what does it look like to have peace in a time of anxiety? How do we rebel against this? Paul would say you would rebel against this by uh, residing in the peace offered to us by 
Jesus. But what does that mean, right? First, we have to talk about what is peace. As I was researching and reading and writing this sermon, I kind of struggled with this word peace because I don't know about you guys, but when I think of peace, I think of a coffee on a Saturday morning when it's quiet or sitting by a waterfall and taking a picture so that everyone in my life knows how peaceful I am, right? Or reading in my book nook, book nook? Yeah, reading in my book nook, whatever it is, I think of a, an anthropology candle that's way too expensive. Or uh, maybe for you, you don't think of those things, you think of like this Zen stoicism, right? Like, I'm going to be in the moment every day. I'm going to fully enjoy it and just be okay no matter what happens. Nothing can take me too far high or too far down. Or maybe you think of just like an absence of conflict. Like, maybe you're having a good week when it comes to peace if you're just not arguing with your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or your friends. And although I think some of those are good things and those might be aspects of peace, I don't think that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about Peace. So in the New Testament, the Bible uses the word irene. That's the Greek word for peace. And irene means a completeness or wholeness or everything as it should be. One scholar defined it this way. Irene is the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot, the reconciliation and flourishing of all things to God through the work of Christ. The tranquil state of the soul still sounds a little bit like a candle, right? And so let me, let me say it this way. Let me tell a story, and I think that might be a little bit more helpful. So the Simpsons, when we go on vacation, uh, we tend to have a few consistent patterns. So we always go to this really big house, seemingly in very obscure places, like beaches in Vermont, places I've never heard of before. And... No matter what happens, we always get a place with a really large kitchen table, which makes sense, right? Because it's me, my wife, my mom, my siblings. We have a second family that kind of goes with us, down me, uh, and then uncles, aunts. It could be 15, 20 people, right? So a large kitchen table, you would think we can sit here, we can have dinner together, we can catch up, we can enjoy life together. What a beautiful thing. That's not what my mom sees. My mom, we'll call her Debbie, mostly because that's her name. Debbie, she sees this large kitchen table, and she says, this is the perfect place for me to put my thousand-piece puzzle of the identical blue ocean where there are no discrepancies in it whatsoever. As you can tell, I do not love the puzzles. And so regardless of how everyone else feels, we kind of have this week of trying to put this puzzle together. Some of us do not enjoy it as much as other people. Some of us say things like, let's do anything else, or this is terrible, or what are we doing? How do we do this every year? You know, and we get into arguments, but eventually, eventually we finish the puzzle, and I always get to put the last piece of the puzzle in, mostly because it's usually the first piece of the puzzle that I know where it goes. I'm not great with puzzles. And my mom, my mom, despite these arguments and despite these yelling and tears, not important, not the point of the story, despite all these things, my mom always has this peace or confidence that we are going to reach this 
this point. We are going to know, we are going to get to this place where the puzzle is complete. And even me, someone who hates puzzles with a passion, there's this sense of fulfillment and accomplishment when you put that last piece of the puzzle in. When you know this 2,400 piece of the ocean puzzle is finally done and we don't have to do it again for at least a year. And I think, as silly as it sounds, that puzzle is actually a good analogy of life. Because we have two responses. You can be like me in life and you can say, what is this chaos and where do these pieces go and what do we even do? How are we supposed to respond to this? Or you can be like my mom and you can say, we've got the front of the box. We know we're going to get there. And when we get there, it will actually be good. There's actually a reason to the chaos. Did I just describe the Christian life? Did I compare it to a thousand-piece puzzle? I did. You're welcome. You're welcome. And so let me show you how Jesus lives in this life of a reine and how our anxiety opposes it. We are going to see the anxiety of the disciples in juxtaposition to the peace of Jesus. The disciples living out of the flesh and Jesus living out of the spirit. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark 4, verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So we have three markers of anxiety. The first is, anxiety does not trust the kindness of God. Anxiety does not trust the kindness of God. So context for this story, the disciples and Jesus have been traveling together for a little bit of time now. The disciples have seen Jesus do amazing things like heal people, feed people, preach sermons, all these stuff. And finally, they decide that it's time to keep moving and they get into a boat, probably on the Sea of Galilee. And as they cross to the other side, out of nowhere, this huge storm comes out. And the disciples are terrified because water's starting to hit the boat. It's starting to fill the boat. They're thinking that they're going to drown. And so they're freaking out. And you see, it's actually for them even more than a storm. Because in this time period, especially in the Bible, but also to the disciples, the sea, the ocean, was kind of this source of evil or chaos. So the disciples, even though they're in the middle of the storm, they actually think that this storm is evil itself coming after them, that evil is trying to destroy them. It's not just a storm. And Jesus is asleep, seemingly unfazed, doesn't even care that this evil is trying to destroy them. And so finally they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? In other words, Jesus, do you not realize what's going on? This water is going to flip the boat. We're going to drown. Do you even care about us? You don't care enough to even be awake? And what the disciples are actually asking is, will Jesus give them peace? And it's easy for me to kind of sneer at or look down upon the disciples in this moment. It's like, seriously? You've seen this guy do amazing things. You've seen him heal people, bring people from the dead back to life, and you don't know if he's going to do something for you. 
like his 12 best friends, his boys that he's walking life with? But then I remember how easy it is for me to get to this same place. It's so easy for me to get to the question, do you even care? God, do you even care at the end of the day? Do you care about me? Like the disciples, I so quickly forget all the things that he has done, all the ways that he has shown up, because anxiety forgets. Anxiety forgets who God is. It forgets what God has done. Anxiety questions, if God really cared, then he would do this. If God really loved me, then he would do this. And so what our anxiety does, what our flesh does is you need to take control. You need to step back in. You need to make sure it's going to happen because we don't know if God's going to be there when we need him, despite all the evidence to the contrary. But peace... The Spirit remembers the kindness of God. The Spirit remembers that we have been here before and that we follow a God that has always been patient and kind, that He has always shown up when we need Him. Peace trusts and anxiety questions. Let's keep reading. Verse 39. And He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Marker number two, anxiety does not have faith. Anxiety does not have faith. So after the disciples question Jesus, after their anxiety has convinced them that he does not care, Jesus steps in and calms the storm. He reminds them why they should trust him. The disciples are asking, does Jesus actually offer peace? Does he actually step in when I need him? And Jesus steps in and takes care of the storm. And I think the way this story happens is really important because I think we, as modern Americans, can switch the order. We can say that Jesus goes, why do you have no little faith? And then he calms the storm. But that's not really what happens. Let's look at what happens. The order is important. Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm first. And then he says, why do you have such little faith? It's easy for us to think, I've got to get it together. I've got to figure it out. I've got to be doing the right thing. And if I'm doing the right thing, then God's going to show up, right? If I'm doing the right thing, if I pull my bootstraps up and I take care of my sin and I repent and I go to church, and I, then God will be there. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus takes care of the problem first. He takes care of the problem first, and then he says, hey, you know you can trust me, right? I've always been here. And that's the difference between religion and relationship. Religion says, if you do this, God will love you. And relationship says, God already loves you. Let me help you do this. And that's that's an important difference. And the Bible actually talks a lot about the struggle to believe in these types of circumstances. Uh, In Mark 9, there's a really beautiful story about this. So if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 9, verse 22. So basically what's happening is a father brings his son to Jesus. And this son is demonically possessed, and the disciples cannot cast out the demon. And so the father is asking Jesus 
Please take this demon out of my son. Let's start reading in verse 22. And it has often cast him into the fire and the water. So this is the father talking about the demon inside the boy, that this demon is throwing his son into fire and water. It has often cast him into the fire and the water to destroy him. But if you, talking to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So after this, Jesus casts out the demon. He does the thing that the father asked him to do. And this is why this is important. This is why this is so beautiful. Because Jesus not only shows up, he not only shows up and calms the storm. He not only offers peace during the time of trial. He also helps us have faith. So, so let, me, let me break that down. Uh, it's not only not about you doing the right thing and then God showing up. It's not even about you believing the right thing. Even when you don't believe the right thing, what Jesus says here is he helps you anyways. So he not only helps you do the thing you need to do, when you don't believe in him, he steps in and helps you believe in him. So it's not about you at all. You didn't do the right thing, you didn't believe in him, and he doesn't care. He still steps into that and chooses to love you. Peace does not look like having all the answers. It does not mean not having doubts. It means looking at God and being like, I don't even know if I can believe in you. Help me anyways. And he does. That's what this happens. That's what happens in this story. And in my experience of anxiety, in my experience in my life, it often starts hypothetical. So kind of like the disciples in verse 38, there's this question of, do you even care? And then you wrestle with that and you, and you figure that out and you kind of land at, yeah, okay, cerebrally, I know God cares. But then whether it's tragedy or whether just normal anxiety coming in your life, something happens and it's like you go back to square one. And you have to relearn, you have to re-remember, you have to re-ask, does God even care about me? Is he even there? Does he even, will he show up when I need him? Our flesh wants us to run towards isolation. So it sounds something like this. Yeah, God cares about those other people, but not you. You're different. You're uniquely terrible. And because you're uniquely terrible, you need to take back control of your life because you could never be enough for God anyway. That's what anxiety sounds like, at least for me. And what peace sounds like, what Jesus sounds like, is he looks at us and says, I'm here. I love you. I, I care about you. Anxiety weaponizes your doubt. It takes your doubts in the middle of tragedy, in the middle of anxiety, and says, see, you didn't even believe to begin with. Right? And Jesus says, I'm here. I know that it's hard to believe right now. And some of us need to hear that. Some of us are in the middle of the storms of life, or whatever phrase you want to use, and some of us need to hear that Jesus is there and that he cares, that he loves you now, and he's not looking at you disappointed in you. He's not asking why you don't believe more. He's not asking why you don't understand him, and he's offering peace, not peace found in changing circumstances. I know that he stops the storm in this story, but there are a lot of other stories where he doesn't. 
And he says that this world is going to be hard, and he promises that. But there is peace found in the spirit of him that is living in you, that is more or better than any circumstance that could change in your life because God of the universe loves you, and he is offering his fruit of the spirit to you. He wants a relationship with you. You don't have to go back to anxiety because you don't have to know the answer. You can just abide in him. You have the spirit of God in you, and that is enough. Just fall at the feet of Jesus, and that's it. You don't have to know anything else. Let's keep reading. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who, this is the, who, this, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Marker number three, anxiety forgets who God is. Anxiety forgets who God is. So fear here is more like an awe. They are amazed by him, which makes sense, right? Can you imagine that there's this guy, you're in the middle of the storm that's going to kill you, and with a word, he calms the storm? It's just stopped. And, and this is something that has always fascinated me about this story. A decent group of these disciples are fishermen, which means they're very, very familiar with water. They're very, very familiar with boats. They, this isn't a unique uh, situation for them. In fact, a lot of these guys probably fish specifically on the Sea of Galilee. So not only are they not new to water, they're not new to this water. They understand this situation completely. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, when the disciples are worried about the storm killing them, they're not being dramatic. They're not being hyperbolic. They're not trying, they're not being ridiculous. They're probably right. They're sitting here going, I know the situation. I know what's going on. This is going to kill us. And Jesus rebukes them, which is interesting. It kind of makes me ask the question, why? If they're not being dramatic, if they don't if they're not wrong about the situation, why does he rebuke them if they're in actual danger? Because Jesus does not rebuke them because they are incorrect about the situation. He rebukes them because they're incorrect about who he is. Jesus rebukes them because they're incorrect about who he is. So anxiety causes us to look to ourselves and to our circumstance and say, we're perishing Look, I'm not being ridiculous. Look around me. Look at what is happening. We need to freak out. We need to take control. And peace reminds us to look at God and remember who he is and his character. And despite our circumstance, he is in control. And the disciples are starting to understand their question, who is this man? They're starting to understand the question that they have asked. This is actually an ongoing theme in the book of Mark. The disciples are becoming more and more aware of who Jesus actually is. So in this story, they call him teacher. And they've called him Messiah up to this point. So they understand that he's been sent by God, that he has a unique mission. But they will actually continue to see who he really is. They will continue to ask, because of this encounter and because of other things, who is this guy that can command to the wind and the sea, who can speak and bring a storm to the calm. And although the disciples don't know the answer in this passage, we do. We know the rest of the story. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Micah 5, 4, verse 5. 
and read with me. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So this is a prophecy about 700 years before Jesus, walked, uh, Jesus calms the storm in Mark. And so what Micah is doing is he's actually talking to the Jews before the Assyrians are going to come in, which are the enemies of the Jews. Before the Assyrians are going to come in, they're going to take the Jews, they're going to enslave them, it's going to be terrible. And what he's telling them is not to worry because one day God will send a Messiah, a Savior, and he will provide peace not just to the Jews, but to the rest of the world. So this is where this connects. Even though Mark 4 happens, even though it is a very real story, it is also representative of a larger truth that we see throughout the Scriptures. Let me, let me tease this out for you. So in the Bible, we kind of talked about this earlier, the sea is a theme for chaos and evil and the absence of God. It is very common for the sea to stand for the evil one or the absence of God. We see this in Genesis 1. When God is creating the earth, he says that the sea is dark and chaotic. We see that throughout the Old Testament, the enemy of God is depicted as the Leviathan, whose home is the sea, the chaotic sea. And we even see stories like the Israelites in Exodus. As they run away from Pharaoh, the Red Sea is what keeps them from running away from Pharaoh, who is referred to as the monster of the Nile. So in this story, there's the sea, which stands for the enemy of God, the evil one, the absence of God. And then there's Jesus. And Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is in the midst of the storm. The forces of evil and chaos are swirling around him, and they want to destroy him. And he's asleep. He's not even worried about it. And then when he finally does, when he finally does go back and kind of say, okay, there's a storm, he says a few words, and the chaos is ended. It's pacified. He takes care of it. What Mark is trying to show us, what Micah is trying to encourage the Israelites with on the brink of destruction is that God is in control. So when the disciples ask the question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What Mark wants us to know is he's the God of the universe. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one, regardless of our circumstances, we can trust because nothing happens that he is not sovereignly in control of. We do not believe in dualism. We do not believe in there are these competing forces of good and evil that are fighting against one another. God is sovereign. With a word, he stops the evil one. It's over. And so we can run to him. We can trust him in our circumstances because no matter how anxious we are, or how many questions we have, we know who God is. He is the one who is control of our life. Uh, nothing in your life is surprising to him. There's nothing that can happen to you that makes God worry or ask the question, what am I supposed to do right now? Uh, God knows how to put the pieces of the puzzle back together in your life. He's never worried about it. 
And so what that does is it gives us a confidence because the invitation to have peace in Jesus is open. He's there saying, I am in control. I know the anxieties of the world. I know what is going on. I'm asking you to have faith. I'm not asking you to have it figured out. I'm not asking you to know all the answers, but I'm asking you to come to me because I am the one who has life and gives it abundantly. And we know this because Jesus entered into an even greater storm. He came to the earth a man. And he lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross to pay for our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin so that we could have a relationship with him. He knew, we knew, that we could never do it. We could never live the perfect life. So God lived the perfect life on our behalf so he could offer us peace. So he could say, it is finished, come and follow me. Cast your anxieties on me, I am God, I have life, and I give it to you freely. Not after you figure it out, not after you know the answers, but now. Jesus is here, he's in control, and he loves you. As we've been talking this, about this with the entire series, we've been talking about this theme of grace and grit, right? So grace and grit, this idea of we need God to work in our hearts, we need him to move in us. But we also need to take some action. We need to take some steps. And so when you walked in in your bulletin, you should have gotten this practice guide. And so every week what we're doing is we're trying to give you practices that you can do throughout the week to help remind you of both the grace of God, that if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you, working in you, changing you to look more like God, and the grit of believers, that you need to take some steps. You need to care about your spiritual growth and spiritual health. And so this week, these practices look like silence and casting your cares on God. So silence, we want you to take some time and just be quiet before God. We've got some prompts written out for you, but we want you to take 10, 15 minutes and just give some space for God to work on your heart, for him to bring up your anxieties, for him to bring up the ways that you're not trusting in him and allow you to surrender those to him. And then we want you to take some time this week to cast your cares on God. We know the Bible is clear. He says, come to me and cast your anxieties on me. I will give you peace. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, is something he says in Matthew. And so we want you to do those things this week and remember that God is a God of peace, that he both is peace and offers that peace to you. Let's pray. Hey, God. Thanks that you are a God of peace that you are enough, that we don't have to have it figured out, we don't have to know all the answers, but we can just come to you in our deficiencies, in our questions, and know that you love us, that you care, that you offer your fullness to us. Yeah, thanks that you loved us while we were still enemies against you that we didn't have to have it figured out, but you did it for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.